0: Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person hopeful about the future of food. And if you're looking for hopeful and accurate information about agriculture, check out the many uh, wonderful speakers at the 2021 Eco Ag Conference and Trade Show. Uh, that's being held right now in um, Ohio this last week, and it's done by Acres, which is celebrating its 50th year. So uh, later in the show, we we'll are going to be talking um, to Acres and some of the people putting on that about about the keynote speakers and what's going on at that conference, but first we're talking with um, Lauren um, uh, Baker, and she's with the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio.
1: Thanks so much, Laura. Great to be on your show.
0: Thanks, Lauren. I love the name of this Global Alliance for Future of Food.
1: Thank you. We always think of our uh, name as a poem. (laughs) What does your name say about you? (laughs) We are indeed a global alliance of philanthropic foundations um, working together and with others on food systems transformation. So all of us care deeply about the future of food.
0: And so what's your personal background and how did you come to this work?
1: Well, I've worked on food systems issues from um, you know, different entry points uh for my whole career actually. When I was really young, I got um swept into um food as um an issue that really connected to all of my passions to social justice, to the environment, um to global equity, um both um and then and and local equity, you know, issues that I cared about uh, right right at home in my community. I I live in Canada in Toronto, Canada. So um, I've studied uh, food systems issues. Um, I did a PhD and research in Mexico on biodiversity, biotechnology debates, and have looked at policy issues both at the city level with the Toronto Food Policy Council at the provincial or state level, and um, now I'm working at the global level. Um, So really interested in in taking a systems approach to food issues, seeing how, um, you know, food um, connects uh, connects us all and and um, connects across issues like climate, health, um, economy, etc.
0: And so people can go to the website futureoffood.org. And this week um, you launched and released a new report. So talk about that.
1: We did. We launched a report um, called The Politics of Knowledge, Understanding the Evidence for Agroecology, Regenerative Approaches, and in Indigenous Food Ways. And uh, I'm really excited about this work because it involved over sixty contributors, fifteen teams from around the world um, that came together to really think through these issues. We wanted to address these perennial questions of um, you know, the perennial question of what is the evidence? Do we have enough evidence that these approaches will work? And uh, through our conversations with uh, this large group of people, experts, scientists, researchers, farmers, um, social movements, civil society organizations. We really brought together a very diverse group, natural scientists, social scientists, people from Africa, China, um, uh, New Zealand, um, the U.S., um, Latin America, Europe. And uh, so together we had a a conversation about, um, you know, what is the evidence that they see on the ground so um, in their work, what evidence matters to them? And what are some of the issues related to evidence? Why do we, why do we constantly ask these questions? And how can we get beyond uh, these questions as a global community and start to advance these approaches, um, understanding that um, clearly there is enough um, substantial Evidence,
0: right? Because okay, so in the information ecosystem, um, there's a dominant idea out there that we have to feed the world, and in order to feed the world, we need um, industrialization, we need chemicals, we need yields, and um, and so and and almost like we're blind all to the consequences of that. So, how's that impacting water? How's that impacting biodiversity? How does it feel to farm that way? What does that do um, for um, justice issues? So. Part of what I took away from that, um, th- this, this new report and the uh, webinar you held on Monday is how do we own our own narratives?
1: That's right. It's such a good question. You know, what is the, what is the dominant narrative and how do we um, move beyond these dominant narratives as a global community interested in, in systems change, interested in, you know, addressing some of these um, systemic problems? And um, we actually identified five uh, questions that are do- that relate to dominant narratives in this work, and I think they're really um, interesting. And I think that you touched upon them. Can these approaches feed the world? Can they be scaled? Uh, can they provide meaningful livelihoods, jobs? Um, can they solve the climate and biodiversity crises and can they accelerate uh, transformation? So let's take up the the question that you asked. Can these approaches feed the world? Why are we so focused on yield? Um, and uh, what we found is that indeed um, the evidence shows that these uh, approaches, indeed they, that they do feed the world. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um there is an initiative in Zambia, um, um, Kamako. It was founded uh, to address, actually, elephant poaching issues. And um, what the founders found is that by addressing food security, the food security of the local community, through agroecological approaches, um, the elephant poaching uh, stopped. So this is, you know, contributing to biodiversity. Um, through agroforestry, which contributes to um, the climate crisis, contributes to solving the climate crisis, um, food security actually increased 100%. That's astounding. It's like an incredible contribution to food security. So people involved in that program are no longer food insecure um, they're no longer poaching elephants um, to, you know, access a few dollars um, to uh, buy food. And um, and they have meaningful livelihoods. And they're creating you new know, businesses, social enterprises um, around that initiative. So it's really exciting. Similarly, in Andhra Pradesh, India, a um, uh, uh, program which is, you know, one of the largest scale programs um, that we've seen around agroecology, where the state is really advancing um, these approaches at scale, uh, involving 700,000 farmers, yeah, let's, um, let's that talk. food security has really increased by it, like 85%.
0: Okay, that is a beautiful, beautiful example. And I love what they're naming it. They're naming it Zero Budget Natural Farming. So Zero Budget Natural Farming. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how that's working.
1: Yeah, um, zero-budget community-managed natural farming. So the zero-budget part of it comes from um, the fact that farmers don't have to purchase inputs anymore. This model of farming is based on local inputs. So uh, they're using cow manure, they're composting, um, and they have a variety of botanical um, applications that they're using on their crops. So that's the zero budget part. They're no longer um, in this kind of trap of having to purchase um, expensive uh, um, chemical inputs from outside of their community. So that's the zero budget part. The community managed part is that really this whole idea is spreading village to village um, through women farmers and peer networks. So it's a farmer to farmer, uh, farmer to farmer uh, model. And, um, you know, what they've what they've what their contribution showed is that, you know, farmers require a whole other kind of evidence. They need to understand that these approaches are going to work on their farms, that they're going to increase um, their livelihoods, um, that they're that these approaches are going to be stable over time. Um, they're not going to be, you know, uh, uh, they're not at risk of sort of these market um, variations. And um, it's really just the proof of the, of these approaches on the ground in the field, in their communities, that helps people change their mind and transition. Um, they're transitioning farmers over a three-year period, village by village, um, uh, really building the social capital, you know, the community networks, women's leadership Um and uh, that's really exciting. It's super interesting. So community-managed natural farming.
0: And so um, and the, the futureoffood.org is linked to the United Nations. And is that correct? There's some type of relationship that you have with the um, – this was part of the um, United Nations FOA?
1: Yeah. The, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations um, contributed to the report. Um, We partner with them and other United Nations agencies quite a bit on our work. Um, As you can imagine, um, you know, they're working with member states on all of these critical questions. And um, actually, the FAO's contribution was really interesting. They've developed um, an agroecology performance evaluation tool that's very systemic. They've applied it in in Mali and um, Cambodia and many other countries. And this was really because um, member states, government policymakers, agriculture ministers were saying, you know, what's the evidence? We want to be able to speak to the system's impacts of um, ecological um, approaches on the ground. We want to, yes, understand yield. Yes, understand the economic impacts. Uh, We want to understand uh, the impacts on soil and biodiversity, and we also want to understand um, that gender equality is is improving under these um, approaches. That food systems governance overall is is improving. So they they actually create a very holistic um, systems uh, ag- uh, systems evaluation tool, and um, are now collecting that information and uh, sharing it uh, with with governments. Uh, and the information coming from from those early pilots. Are, is very
0: promising yeah because um so I mean one person said how do you how do you measure the smiles how do we <laughs> have farming be a joyful activity and you know we've been in this dominant paradigm that oh we got to have market control and who we're gonna you know we're gonna feed the world and it's like How do we bring back joy and and in the future of food and how do we create that future of food? So we're gonna take a break and we'll be right back talking with Lauren Baker, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us now is Lauren Baker. Uh, She's with the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. And um, welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, Lauren. Thanks, Laura. So, you guys are calling for several, for uh, seven um, calls to action. And um, I want to focus on just one of those um, right now. So, that is action step three and that is to account for the environmental, social, and health impacts of food systems policies and practices in order to inform better decision-making. So what does that mean?
1: Uh, well, um, that is a great question, and that's a really important call to action. It it resonates with so many people um, around the world, and really what it means is that we have to um, account for the true cost, and the true value of food. Um, So when I talk about the costs, um, there are really high costs to our food system, um, costs in terms of uh, environmental damage and degradation, um, in terms of health costs, um, in terms of costs related to equity and justice. And um, none of those costs are reflected in um, the price of food, but we pay for them um, in different ways. So the, the, Ro-
0: true, yeah, yeah. the, the Rockefeller um, Institute has a new report out called The True Cost of Food, Measur- uh, and it, it measures that uh, while we spend about a trillion dollars on food, the impact of that is $3.2 trillion a year, three times more. Um, and so when you take into account the loss of biodiversity, the health problems from the way we're eating, Um, Can we afford this so-called conventional farming?
1: We can't. uh, We can't. We can't afford um, industrialized agriculture. Um, So, you know, when when I say um, industrial agriculture, we've done a a lot of work to really sort of narrow down what we mean by that. And really, there are a couple of qualities and characteristics of industrial agriculture that we can't afford anymore. We can't afford monocrop, high-input chemical agriculture. We can't afford, um, you know, confined animal uh, meat production. Um, We can't afford ultra-processed foods. And um, increasingly, we've seen this through COVID, we can't afford, you know, deregulated, really long-distance supply chains. So that's what we're talking about, and, um, you know, we, we need to reckon with that. Um, the costs of, of those activities are really high, and, um, and what we need to do is turn to understand the true value of food when it's managed for good health. For It's managed, actually, I heard a great quote today, um, where we need to find pathways that take us away from harm toward health very simple message and very beautiful
0: yeah and uh, and uh, I mean, do you ever feel like you're tilting at windmills? This is really I mean <laughs> in some ways we sit back and go, yeah of course we want a food system that nourishes and is sustainable and helps water and protects the soil and yet sometimes it feels like um, speaking in that that voice is um, is hard in this dominant culture.
1: Yeah, it it is hard. Um, There are a lot of vested interests that kind of lock in um, the status quo way of, you know, producing food Um, and, the you know, what we've been talking about in terms of um, locking in industrialized food production. Um, But I am optimistic. I mean, what I'm seeing in my conversations and in my networks are, you know, Organizations like the World Business Council on Sustainable Development really taking on this issue of true cost and true value. I'm seeing investors ask more questions about the full impacts, the full negative impacts of their investments in food, and trying to make visible the positive impacts. And I'm seeing a lot of um, you know initiatives working with farmers to transition. And accelerate the transition to agroecology and, um, and regenerative approaches. So this is really promising. What I think is really essential, um, as we kind of take up this transition is to center on, um, issues of rights. So the right to food, so we don't leave anybody out and, uh, social justice and the associated political and social kind of transformation. This isn't just about, you know, changing, um, you know, from in- industrial to organic food. It's really about a whole systems uh, transformation.
0: So the Future of Food um, held a, a webinar this week. And one of the comments that I really liked in there is she was, this person said, it's not about us and them. It's about us and us in the future.
1: That was a great quote. Um, yeah, it's, we need to let go of the us and them. And I think um, a lot of people are, are genuinely interested in, in you know, systems um, transformation and in this transition process. So how do we create, and this is, I think, a really central question, how do we create the enabling, an enabling environment for this? And this is where it's like an all-hands-on-deck Um scenario. We need, you know, the right policy environment. We need the right kind of investment framework that channels investment flows in the right direction. We need the right research and we need the right, um, you know, action on the ground. So I think increasingly we're mobilizing around this. Um, You know, the urgency is really real. The climate crisis is kind of bearing down on us. I think people are ready to act now, ready to stop talking and start um, acting on some of this.
0: And the other thing that I – so um, agroecology comes from a um, – it, it comes from a regenerative um, viewpoint, not just an extractive viewpoint. So describe – how would you describe agroecology?
1: Well, agroecology um, is an approach that helps that, – that works with nature, agroecology and regenerative um, agriculture Um is really mimicking natural processes. So there are a number of principles that are um that form the foundation of of agroecology principles including diversity, you know, you would be familiar with these because you're interested in permaculture, mm-hmm. diversity, resilience, um uh cooperation and and this, and finding the synergies uh between all of these different principles and elements good governance and new economic models so these are kind of the foundational principles of agroecology and regenerative approaches um agroecology is a practice so it's a practice you know on farms and in value chains uh really uh related to regional uh re- regionalizing food systems and it's a science um uh, it involves, you know, biologists, ecologists, political scientists, anthropologists, the whole group, um, farmers, scientists, and it's a social movement. So it's really exciting because it's a social movement that's, um, you know, really taken root over many decades. And, um, and the time has come, you know, now to really take up these, um, these ideas and these principles and root them in policy. And it's place based.
0: So a lot of times we want to simplify things. And so like there's one way to talk about things throughout the world, but <laughs> we have such a diverse, we're diverse people and we live with diverse soils and we live with diverse areas. So it's about coming home to place.
1: It is about coming home to place. And I think this is why it makes, it, it is complex work. And it's about acknowledging that kind of systems complexity. I really like the way you you said that. It's about coming home to place. Um, and the examples in in our compendium really illustrate that. There's no one-size fits all. We're not talking about you know one idea that's scaled around the world in the way that we kind of think about scale. Um, but we're talking about co-creation in place, co-creation with nature. Um, Having agroecology and regenerative approaches inform a new relationship with nature and co-creation with people, you know, people, farmers, scientists, community members, um, policy makers, you know, really thinking about a deep engagement in place that's solutions oriented and ecologically rooted
0: so if we move to this place uh, do we have to be afraid of starving <laughs> I mean do we have enough can we produce enough food with with this a uh, with this um, with this approach
1: well I think it involves reimagining the food system and um, you know after uh, being involved in this compendium working with these teams um, compiling the mountain of evidence I mean it was completely overwhelming uh, the amount of evidence. Um, Um, these uh, people the the various contributors brought to the table I'm more convinced than ever that um, we're not going to starve if we if we shift to regenerative approaches and um, and you know I think the Andhra Pradesh model is a great example I mean their yields are increasing um, under these practices and with these approaches they're not decreasing and what's really beautiful is it's uh, really a, like a whole, it's not a, we're not just looking at, you know, the yield of corn on a particular farm. We're looking at a, the whole system's yield is increasing. So there's a more diversity produced. Uh, there's more nutritious food produced. Um, and people are having um, better dietary, like better diets um, from from uh, these farms, more nutritious um food. And it, it, it sounds pretty delicious to me. It does. And again, one of these people
0: commented, <laughs> and I love this comment, how do you measure the smiles? Because right now, the other thing that's happening around the globe, there's a lot of people are turning away from farming for all sorts of reasons. Um, and so is this place-based relational way of farming um, more joyful and bringing people back to the land to grow food? Or I think it
1: is. I think it is more joyful. Uh, um, you know, one story, one quick anecdote from from India. Um, a colleague went to, to India and, and was touring the farms and was talking to a woman farmer and, and asked, you know, like, what are the impacts, like, what are the benefits uh, from this system? And she said, well, you know, with a big smile on her face, I'm able to buy, like, a, a new sari. And, um, and, you know, I think it's these, like, simple impacts that are, that bring joy to people. You know, being able to be connected to your community um, in new ways. And it's repairing our relationship with the land. I think we see that in North America um, with, you know, food justice movements that are reclaiming urban space, through urban agriculture, um, reclaiming uh, land and agriculture, thinking about agriculture. I think young people are really excited about this and um, it's the way that they want to get their hands dirty.
0: So, Lauren Baker with the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Um, anything else you'd like
1: to say? No, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Laura.
0: It's been awesome. And people can go online and see this report for themselves. And your website again is?
1: It's uh, futureoffood.org. Please check it out.
0: Futureoffood.org. What a great website name, and what a great name. <laughs> the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. It's not about us and them. It's about us and our future, and let's have a future that honors water and honors soil and honors each other and is a little more joyful and fun. Um, so you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the Acres Conference, the Eco um, Farm Conference going on right now, in um, or going on this week in Ohio. Let's talk. The Bill Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person hopeful about the future of food. And um, thank Lauren Baker um, with the Global Alliance for Food um, for joining us in the first part. Um, and uh, you can get more information by going to uh, futureoffood.org. Um, and right now joining us is Ryan Slabog, and he's with Acres. And there's a wonderful conference going on right now. Hi, Ryan.
2: Well, hello there. It's so so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh,
0: well, thank you so much for joining us. So, tell us about the Eco Ag Conference.
2: Well, we got a few hundred uh, farmers and ranchers and uh, growers here in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, or uh, in, actually we're on the Kentucky side of the river in Cincinnati today. But we're uh, meeting and talking about all things soil health and soil structures, and trying to really help farmers take that step. And uh, you know, especially with fertilizer prices going the way they are and synthetics. Uh, going the way are we're just seeing huge demand for uh, natural solutions and growing. So, luckily, that's what we do here at Acres.
0: Oh, that's okay. So, give us a little bit of background on Acres because it's also your 50th anniversary this year.
2: Correct. We started in that kind of hotbed of environmentalism uh, that started in the mid '60s with uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, um, really documenting the lack of insects and. Uh, wildlife in our rural communities due to the massive use of DDT at the time. Uh, Our founder, Charles Walters, uh, read that book, and that kind of fundamentally gave him a mission in life. Uh, He started Acres in 1971, which is a year after the EPA was formed and a year before DDT was banned. And uh, after that, uh, really kind of helped connect the dots of all these growers who were really resisting the large-scale commercial agriculture that they were being uh, forced upon and uh, really try to protect family farmers and create, keep the independence that uh, most family farmers got into this business for. Yeah. So at- uh, fast forward a few years later and we had the organic standards, you know, 30 years after we started. So
0: that's great. I know I'm going to, so um, I just, the keynote, I'm going to start with you. So it's this Tuesday and we're recording this on Thursday and it's going to air this weekend. Um, okay. But so the, the keynote on Tuesday was, we are the earth and the earth is us.
2: That is correct. That was, uh, Fred Provenza. Um, he's a, he's a wildlife researcher, which might strike some people as an odd pick for an agriculture conference is why would you have a wildlife researcher, uh, talking? And, but what he studies is natural animal behaviors and how those, you know, and, and when we take animals out of their natural habitat and remove choice of food from them, it fundamentally alters them and it actually creates, you know, toxic environments for them. So unfortunately, that's where a lot of the, you know, the CAFOs and the large of the large commercial livestock, pens are at these days is really removing animals from choice in the food supply and and the amazing research that he's done is that animals will actually choose the healthy food that they need when given the choice and so uh, a lot of times that can actually remove the burden of management from the farmers and and return that to managing pasture instead of managing the cattle themselves so that's really what he was talking about except uh, at a very high level and really trying to connect the dots between when we are challenged in life um We form a chrysalis. And so we have to go through the chrysalis process. We can't shortcut that. Um, That is what life is.
0: That's interesting. Now, one of the titles of his book I absolutely love What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom.
2: And that's really it, is that I think when we've disrupted our natural food cycles, you know, the first time we have a Domino's Pizza or a Milky Way candy bar, we've fundamentally disrupted the natural. Decision maker, we've we've overwhelmed ourselves with an energy feedback uh, complex that we can never really return to. At some point, that our, our body is always going to recognize that instant energy we got from that and be it ultimately. And and the same thing happens when a bear breaks into a dumpster in a parking lot, uh, or or and he gets a Domino's pizza for the first time. They're gonna to return to that dumpster because of that energy feedback. So there's, there's some real comparisons of what we witness in nature to what we're witnessing in what we call our civilization
0: yeah and this um this nutritional I'm, I'm I'm going to be doing a show in um in in January I've been reading more about um our microbiome and how our microbiomes are becoming a lot less diverse and that's causing a whole bunch of health problems and the problem um the root cause of our the lack of biodiversity in our in our guts is the lack of biodiversity in our soils. So our soils are, our soils and our guts are connected in some ways.
2: It, it, it's very true. Um, one of our farmers, Marty Travis in Illinois, uh, a couple of years ago had um, a bunch of internal medicine uh, med, uh, doctors and naturopaths and, natural paths and uh, uh, you know diet managers and nutritionists uh, on his farm. He didn't want farmers; he wanted them, and their mouths were were pretty wide open when he was showing them the nutrient density in the food he was growing and the testing versus what was found in the grocery store, and and when he was looking at specifically calcium deficiencies in the soil, their eyes really peaked up because they said, that's what we're seeing in our patients, and that it connected the dots, you know, immediately for them that the food they were getting was not providing them the nutrients they did, and that's because of how we were growing our food, and and even those, you know, well-educated medical professionals had not yet quite connected those dots, and so that's really what we're doing, and the microbiome, is, is that research is just really getting underway. We're really starting to understand those connections. And I think that's, you know, fundamentally the next, the next chapter. You know, I hope that happens in my lifetime where we can really understand that relationship at a, at a microbiology level.
0: Right, right. So the my guest uh, that I'm going to have on uh, January 18th uh, recently was published in the um, a journal Cell, and they have documented at the University of Minnesota that how if I eat something, my body responds to it different than your body <laughs> responds to it. So, I mean, it's just – it's in one way, it's really complex, this new emerging understanding. And in other ways, it's not all that complex. It's very simple. And maybe getting back to Fred's um, uh, book, uh, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom. You know, and this is what Acres has been about for 50 years.
2: Yeah, that's correct. We we fundamentally don't see uh, the end product of a farm as a piece of meat or a vegetable, but it's truly a, a feeling, caring, thoughtful human being, you know, at the end. And so we're not really doing our jobs if we just focus on that product that we're bringing and not focus on the customer that's using it
0: and so Wednesday's um, keynote the, that was the, this is the title of Wednesday's keynote unraveling our dependence on a- chemical agriculture pioneering the ways to make non-toxic farming profitable and joyful
2: that was a powerful talk that will and Jenny Harris gave from white Oak pastures and a lot of people were very um, or that are familiar with them but we did that was the first time that Jenny and will had ever hosted a talk together uh, on equal ground and so we had two chairs sitting next to each other and it was really a generational talk about uh, opportunity. And what Will had done was become very dissatisfied with his farming system. He was raising livestock very conventionally, uh, and the gains were decreasing year over year, and he knew something had to change. He saw his kids growing up, and uh, none of them wanted to be farmers. None of them wanted to be ranchers, and he just saw, saw the, the the problems that his systems were causing that he never intended ultimately. And so what he, uh, he was very brave and the, and one of the first things he did was step aside and put Jenny, his daughter in charge and his other daughters in charge of uh, growth and expanding and problem solving. And so they started e-commerce, they owned their customer base, they went to grass fed pastures, uh, they changed everything and they, they literally grew their company by more than 20 times the size in the last 20 years. And so they're just a really unbelievable example of how, We need to think about farming generationally, and we really have to make sure that um, uh, we've got multiple generations working on farms because that's really the true definition of sustainability. If You really only have one generation who's 60 years old uh, or older, which is the average age of a farmer um, owning the farm, that fundamentally is not sustainable. So we really feel like you need two or three generations getting a full-time salary to truly define yourself as a sustainable operation.
0: Yeah, we're gonna take a we're gonna take a break, and we're gonna come back. We're gonna talk more about healthy and nutritional, and uh, fun and joyful um, egg systems that uh, that you know that, that feed each other and also feed our souls. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM nine fifty, the progressive voice in Minnesota. to Food Freedom Radio. Um, I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap and a person hopeful about the future of food. Um, joining us right now is Ryan Slybach and he's with Acres. Um, and he's calling us from the uh, 2021 EcoAg Conference and Trade Show. Uh, welcome back to Food Freedom Radio.
2: Well, thank you, and thank you again for having me.
0: Yes, and so I know one of the other um, s- s- sections that you have uh, was on meat processing bottlenecks, and we saw that in COVID, so much horrid stuff was going on with that. But talk a little bit about the problems with meat processing.
2: It's a really uh, big challenge for especially um, uh, smaller ranchers uh, and, and farmers, and it's really become a, a critical issue, like you mentioned, during the pandemic when we saw our global supply lines uh, get disrupted and are still disrupted, and and we're talking years, not weeks or months, to return them. Uh, so fundamentally, how do we feed ourselves when when we've decided to be a globalized food supply company or, or you know, world? And so I think what we've seen uh, come out of that is people trying to solve that, and uh, the amount of consolidation that's happened has really penalized the consumer as well. So as consumers start asking for better data about where their meat is grown, um, it's really hard to find in, in a consolidated Food processing, uh, you just lose track of where the meat's from at some point. And we certainly know labeling issues are out there that are, that are adding to the problems of, of where our meat is being sourced. So the solutions are out there. Um, we're seeing mobile processors start to pop up where you see, you know, three semis will show up at a, at a farm. One will do the dressing and cleaning. One will do the, the slaughter and one will do the, uh, the butchering, uh, and, and, and meat packing. And then they pull out, and they're done. and uh, we're seeing people like Will Harris and Jenny Harris last night to invest in their own processing, which uh, probably I wouldn't recommend to most, but it's certainly an option if you really want to scale and you really want to own your uh, the entire supply line you know that you're working on because at some point you know you 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 do take risks when you go to any processor at some point. and then I, the third I think we're seeing um uh, smaller processors work within co-ops as well, and I I think that's you know, or collectives or however you want to call that, that that's a critical piece to making sure it's not just farms growing different types of vegetables, but it's actually services that you need to bring in to support it. Uh, we've got some farms that are, you know, when you get to the 100 to 150 farm co-op, that can start to support a processor, especially if they're connected to restaurants and, and really active. Uh, food communities, so uh, so there are solutions out there, but it's challenging
0: yeah, it is challenging and but raising up that image um and um I, again if, uh, earlier in the show, I was quoting somebody else who said it's not about us and them, it's about us and us in the future <laughs> and so this image <laughs> of this image of a lot of um small processors and small independent farmers and working in collaboration to feed ourselves is just very um thriving and vital. And hopeful.
2: It, it's really been our model uh, since we were hunter gatherers, you know, back back in the day. Uh, and so,
0: it's not we, really a new idea.
2: Really, <laughs> no, it's it's really just you know I, I really believe in the the, the concept of uh, simplicity on the other end of complexity. And you oh. know, when we see simplicity first, we tend to ignore it or dismiss it or. Keep I mean, think it's too cheap, but when we've gone through this big complicated thing that we put ourselves, so we put ourselves through that. Nobody else did. You know, we decided to complicate this system and ship beef to all over the world when we could be feeding our local communities. Uh, and then when we see simplicity on the other side of it, sometimes that has a tremendous amount of value. And so I think that might be where we are at this point in the cycle is embracing that simplicity that was handed to us naturally, but we gave up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, cutting down the Amazon rainforest and having three, four companies control eighty percent of the food supply is not, not very simple. Not, but, uh, but one of the other buzz topics I want to make sure we talked a little bit about is plant-based meats or fake meats. And so, what are people feeling and thinking? What kind of conversations are you hearing around that topic?
2: It's a really interesting topic, and I know I can get uh, into some sensitive areas there with, uh, you know, diets. and I'm certainly not trying to tell people what to eat when I answer that question, but I think the mistake we see people making is connecting the dots between plant-based meat and climate change or carbon sequestration or the lack of methane pollution in the atmosphere. Uh, unfortunately, that's, you know, us deferring and blaming cows for the problems that we are creating. And that's just a little too easy. And I think common sense can kind of lead us there, but also know that it's not the animals that are doing it's how we're managing the animals. And I think that's really the public education we need to get out there is that, you know, the Will Harris and the Jenny Harris is running white oak pastures. They don't have pollution problems. They're using their families in an integral system, and it's a full circular economy that they're building and using animal waste in a responsible way. Uh, It's when we treat it like a waste product where we get in trouble. And I think that's – and we treat animals like a disposable uh, object and not like sentient beings, we get in trouble as well. So I think that's where we're we're seeing the – I really believe it's coming from a good place, you know, where they want to treat animals better and we want to create a better environment. But the solution is really to teach farmers and our consumers that there is a responsible way to have livestock. We can't remove animals from our ecosystems because that's a fundamental part of our ecosystem. And we have to understand that bovines, especially – in North America, we you know we had 50 million buffalo uh, running around in the upper Midwest for centuries, and uh, that was part of that ecosystem that we are still benefiting from today, but uh, is degrading. So it's a a tough topic and I just think, you know, we just
0: need a lot of consumers. It is and we can do a more focused topic on it. But I've heard um, experts like Dr. Rotan Law who uh, won the World Food Mm -hmm. Prize um, and he was speaking at the Nobel Conference on the Soil. Um, But so when you have animals on the land, it is better for the soil. And so, I mean, all of these arguments are complex. But I also like what you said that it's often simplicity at the end of that complexity. And so maybe the simple thing is to be more humble with the natural world.
2: I, I think that it is that mindset that we have to start. You're exactly right that we talk so much about the mindset that it takes to succeed. And without that, uh, it's really never going to work. And so you're exactly right. It's what is our place and what 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 authority do we really have over the natural systems? And I don't think we have as much as we thought we could have that when we've tried to control and kill, um, you know, nature gets the laugh last or the, the laugh, laugh, the last laugh. Excuse me. I mean, that's one of the rules of nature is that, uh, you know, so we're setting ourselves up to to get a pretty good punchline at this point before right. we try to control.
0: So a minute left in the conference. Just give us an overview of what else is going on there and how people can learn more about acres.
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, you can go to our website at www.acresusa.com to see uh, everything that we do. Uh, we also run a big bookstore here. We're a book publisher, and we still are committed to uh, really having farmers, teach farmers through books and helping use those books to open doors for farmers as well. Uh we do a lot of digital, we do podcasts, we do we have free articles out there. And uh, most recently we were just named the uh official soil health educator for the state of Colorado, which is where we're based in their soil health program. So that's part of our future is to work with uh, extension offices and uh conservation districts and state ag associations and direct and districts to uh, really make soil health education attached to the policies that we know are coming to incentivize soil health so we're excited about that and uh, lots of opportunity to come for us so
0: 2021 e- eco egg conference and trade show um farmers uh, over how hum- many farmers uh, hundreds of farmers learning from each other and all um, grounded in uh, soil from the soil up right
2: that that is it everybody came here individually with that of all different backgrounds sizes of farms uh uh, we have a very diverse crowd here so thank you so much ryan
0: with acres and thank you for listening to food freedom radio
2: thank you